The House and Senate will both return today and stay in session through Thursday. Last week in the House, the House returned on Tuesday and they took up three bills under suspension of the rules. Two of the bills passed, one of the bills failed. On Wednesday, the House took up and passed a rule. Then the House took up two resolutions dealing with a potential rail strike. The first one, H.J. Res. 100, codified the terms of the agreement worked out by the Biden administration. The second one changed a provision regarding paid sick leave, extending the terms of the original agreement from one day of paid sick leave to seven days. Both resolutions passed. On Thursday, the House took up H.R. 3372, the One-Stop Shop Community Reentry Program Act of 2022. The bill passed by a vote of 259 to 167. Then, by a vote of 324 to 90, the House took up and passed H.R. 6878, the Pregnant Women in Custody Act. Then the House took up a series of votes on bills under suspension of the rules, all of which passed, and then they were done. This week in the House, they'll return today, but no votes are expected. Instead, members have been advised that the first votes of the week could occur as early as 9.30 a.m. Tuesday morning. At that time, the House is scheduled to take up no fewer than 13 bills under suspension of the rules. On Wednesday and Thursday, the House will take up the Senate amendment to H.R. 8404, the so-called Respect for Marriage Act. That bill passed the House earlier in the year, but it has to be voted on again because when the Senate dealt with it last week, they amended it. The House will also consider H.R. 3648, the Eagle Act of 2022, and H.R. 7946, the Veterans Services Recognition Act of 2022. Additional legislative items are possible, most likely including the National Defense Authorization Act, which we will talk about more in a moment. Last week in the Senate, the Senate came back to work on Monday and agreed to invoke cloture on the amended version of H.R. 8404, the so-called Respect for Marriage Act, a bill that would codify the Supreme Court's ruling in the 2015 Obergefell v. Hodges ruling regarding same-sex marriage. The vote for cloture was 61 to 35, with the same 12 Republicans voting to advance protections for same-sex marriage as had voted that way before the Thanksgiving break. On Tuesday, the Senate took up three Republican amendments to the bill. All three failed. Then the Senate voted to pass the bill by a vote of 61 to 36, with the same 12 Republicans crossing party lines. On Wednesday, the Senate voted to invoke cloture on and then to confirm the nominations of Camille L. Velez-Reeve to be U.S. District Judge for the District of Puerto Rico and Anne M. Nardachi to be U.S. District Judge for the Northern District of New York. Then the Senate voted to confirm Robert Philip Storch to be Inspector General of the Department of Defense. On Thursday, the Senate voted to invoke cloture on the nomination of Jerry W. Blackwell to be U.S. District Judge for the District of Minnesota. Then the Senate voted to invoke cloture on the nomination of Doris L. Pryor to be U.S. Circuit Judge for the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals. Then the Senate turned to the railway strike resolution that had passed the House the day before. First, it considered an amendment offered by Alaska Republican Senator Dan Sullivan to institute a 60-day cooling-off period that would delay the strike. That amendment was defeated by a vote of 25 to 70. Then came a vote on a concurrent resolution that would have amended the resolution to include seven days of paid sick leave. That resolution fell short as well. Then the Senate voted by 80 to 15 to pass the resolution that had passed the House and send it to the president to avert the rail strike. And then they were done. This week in the Senate, they'll come back today with the first vote set for 5.30 p.m. At that time, the Senate will proceed to a roll call vote on the confirmation of Doris L. Pryor to be a circuit judge of the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals.
Then, based on the majority leader's cloture filings, I anticipate we'll see action on the following. Francis K. Beam to be a U.S. District Judge for the Eastern District of Michigan. Kelly Brisbane Hodge to be a U.S. District Judge for the Eastern District of Pennsylvania. Mia Roberts Perez to be a U.S. District Judge for the Eastern District of Pennsylvania. Kai N. Scott to be a U.S. District Judge for the Eastern District of Pennsylvania. And John Frank Murphy to be a U.S. District Judge for the, you guessed it, Eastern District of Pennsylvania. Now, back to that same-sex marriage bill. What's troubling about passage of the so-called Respect for Marriage Act is that the bill isn't really about same-sex marriage. It's really about religious liberty. The legislation that passed the Senate and then is about to pass the House creates a private cause of action that would allow an individual citizen to file a lawsuit against a private institution that holds to the sincerely held religious belief that marriage is the union of one man and one woman. Utah Senator Mike Lee offered an amendment to make clear that no one could use this legislation to retaliate against those who hold such views, but his amendment was defeated. Every senator who voted against the Lee amendment made a deliberate choice to make vulnerable people and institutions that hold to traditional views of marriage. Now to the NDAA, we promise to talk about more. At a press conference last Wednesday afternoon, 20 Senate Republicans threatened to block the National Defense Authorization Act from final passage unless Congress first agrees to remove the military's COVID-19 vaccine mandate and to reinstate with pay all those service members who had been fired under that policy. According to Pentagon data, about 3,300 Marines, 1,800 soldiers, 1,800 sailors, and 900 airmen have been dismissed for refusing to be vaccinated. Appearing on Fox News Sunday morning futures yesterday morning, House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy claimed he had worked out an arrangement with President Biden. Quote, we will secure lifting that vaccine mandate on our military, he said. What we're finding out is they're kicking out men and women who are serving asked if the vaccine mandate would be removed in the NDAA, McCarthy replied, quote, yes, it will. Otherwise, the bill will not move, end quote. The bill could hit the House floor as early as Tuesday. Now to Biden's student loan debt payoff scam. On Thursday of last week, the Supreme Court announced it would decide whether the Biden administration has the legal authority to wipe out hundreds of billions of dollars of student loan debt. The justices declared they would hear arguments in February in the case of the six states suing the Biden administration over lost revenues, which seems to be the case with the best chance of success. The justices left in place a a nationwide injunction that blocks the program. The announcement by the Supreme Court followed by nine days, an announcement from the Biden administration that Biden would extend the pause on federal student loan repayments that's been in place since March of 2020. The extension is the sixth extension put in place by Biden. Prior to his announcement extending the debt repayment pause, repayments had been scheduled to resume on January 1. The Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget released an analysis showing that changing the date of the resumption of loan repayments from January 1 to September 1, that is 60 days after the date litigation will be presumed to have ended, would cost $40 billion. Quote, that would bring the total cost of the student loan debt pause to $195 billion. Continuing to extend the pause through the end of 2024 would increase the total cost of the pause 
to $275 billion, said the analysis. Every month the pause is extended, costs the federal government $5 billion, due mainly to lost interest collection. Now to government funding, everybody's favorite subject in the lame duck session. Last Tuesday, President Biden hosted the four congressional party leaders at the White House to discuss government funding. Emerging from the meeting, Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell allowed us how the five agreed they would prefer to do a full year omnibus bill rather than a continuing resolution. But he said there were still hitches in play. The biggest hitch is this. For the last several years, Democrats have insisted on what they call parity between the amounts appropriated for defense and non-defense discretionary spending. Republicans very much want to increase the amount allocated by the Biden budget for defense spending because they are very concerned about Russia and Ukraine and very concerned about China and Taiwan and very, very concerned about Iran and Israel and Saudi Arabia. Democrats, as ever, are happy to spend more money because Democrats are happy to spend more money, even if it's on defense. But they want an increase in non-defense spending by similar amounts as the price for their support for the increase in defense spending. Republicans counter that the Democrats have been on a spending binge already in this Congress, that between the $1.9 trillion spring 2021 spending bill and the $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill, and the $280 billion chips bill, and the $740 billion Inflation Reduction Act, there's more than enough domestic spending going on already, and Democrats don't need to plus up the year-end spending bill. Democrats aren't convinced, and they haven't rolled over yet. The current current continuing resolution expires on December 16th, which is one week from this coming Friday. Stay tuned. Final election results. Barring a reversal in the Colorado 3 contest, which is headed to an automatic recount because of the meager margin of victory, the balance of power in the House of Representatives in the 118th Congress will be 222 Republicans against 213 Democrats, the mirror image of what it is today. That will give the Republican speaker a five-vote margin. That is, he or she will be able to lose just four votes if all members are voting. More on that discussion of House Republican Conference internal party rules. Members of the House Republican Conference for the 118th Congress met last Wednesday to continue their consideration of proposed changes to their internal Republican conference rules. The conference passed by voice vote a proposal by Texas Republican Chip Roy to require the leadership to give five days notice to any bills being considered under suspension of the rules. The conference also passed another proposal from Congressman Roy that would require the Rules Committee to consider any amendment that has the support of 20% of the Republican conference. Both proposals have been watered down a bit from their original language. Most of the House Freedom Caucus proposed rules changes were defeated. For instance, California Congressman Tom McClintock's motion to ban earmarks went down by a vote of 158 to 58 to 1. A proposal to have the selection of committee chairs moved from the steering committee, where the power now lies, to the members of the individual committees themselves was defeated. So it was a House Freedom Caucus proposal to require appropriations bills to be considered one at a time rather than be thrown together into one huge bill we call an omnibus. Now to the Twitter files. 
On Friday evening, chief twit Elon Musk began releasing internal company documents revealing what was happening behind the scenes during the hectic days at the close of the 2020 presidential campaign, when Twitter led social media giants in blocking circulation of the New York Post's blockbuster Hunter Biden laptop story. He did so via a lengthy Twitter thread from independent journalist Matt Taibbi, who documented the backstory in a long tweet thread. The documents showed that Twitter was responsive to pressure from outside actors seeking to manipulate speech. Quote, by 2020, requests from connected actors to delete tweets were routine, wrote Taibbi. One executive would write to another, quote, more to review from the Biden team. The reply would come back, handled. Taibbi said those requests would come from actors in both political parties. He said the document showed that Twitter executives honored requests from the Trump White House as well as the Biden campaign. Quote, Both parties had access to these tools. For instance, in 2020, requests from both the Trump White House and the Biden campaign were received and honored. However, this system wasn't balanced, he wrote. It was based on contacts because Twitter was and is overwhelmingly staffed by people of one political orientation. There were more channels, more ways to complain open to the left, well, Democrats, than the right, end quote. Included is a truly telling exchange between a senior Twitter executive and a Democrat congressman who emerges as more of a champion of free speech than were the people running an organization built to encourage faster and wider dissemination of ideas and information. As Taibbi writes, quote, a fundamental problem with tech companies and content moderation, many people in charge of speech know slash care little about speech and have to be told the basics by outsiders, end quote. He then shows an exchange between former Twitter head of legal policy and trust Vijaya Gade and California Democrat Ro Khanna, who had reached out to Gade expressing concerns over the First Amendment problems Twitter had just stepped into. Gade didn't understand and thought the congressman was wondering about the details of Twitter's content moderation policy, so he explained them in detail. Kana responded, quote, but this seems a violation of the First Amendment principles. If there's a hack of classified information or other information that could expose a serious war crime and the New York Times was to publish it, I think the New York Times should have that right. A journalist should not be held, respo- should not be held accountable for the illegal actions of the source unless they actively aided the hack. So to restrict the distribution of that material, especially regarding a presidential candidate, seems not in the keeping of the principles of New York Times v. Sullivan. I say this as a total Biden partisan and convinced he didn't do anything wrong. But the story now has become more about censorship than relatively innocuous emails, and it's become a bigger deal than it would have been. It is also now leading to serious efforts to curtail Section 230, many of which would have been a mistake. In the heat of a presidential campaign, restricting dissemination of newspaper articles, even if New York Post is far right, seems like it will invite more backlash than it will do good. End quote. Two cheers for Congressman Khanna. Two things are missing from the documents. There is no smoking gun showing that Twitter pulled the Hunter Biden laptop story under pressure from the government. And there is no order from then Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey. In fact, it appears Dorsey wasn't involved in any of the initial discussions. Former President Trump responded with multiple posts on his social media platform, Truth Social. Quote, 
Do you throw the presidential election results of 2020 out and declare the rightful winner, or do you have a new election? A massive fraud of this type and magnitude allows for the termination of all rules, regulations, and articles, even those found in the Constitution. Our great founders did not want and would not condone false and fraudulent elections, end quote. Many people say they disagree and believe nothing allows for the termination of the rules, regulations, and articles found in the Constitution President Trump swore to preserve, protect, and defend. Now to New York's attack on the First Amendment. That disturbance you felt in the force on Saturday was a new law going into effect in New York. Bloomberg describes the law as, quote, prohibiting hate speech on social media end quote, which just goes to show how poorly the Bloomberg copy editor understands the concept of free speech. The new law requires the proprietor of any social media network, including a website that allows comments, to publish a plan for responding to so-called hate speech by users. The law requires the proprietor to give users a way to complain and requires the proprietor to respond to such complaints. The good news is that on Thursday, the legal affairs blog, the Volok Conspiracy, and the video site Rumble Inc. filed a federal lawsuit against New York State Attorney General Letitia James, seeking to block the new law. Now, more Trump news. On the Tuesday evening before Thanksgiving, President Trump had dinner at Mar-a-Lago with billionaire rap mogul and Hitler fan Ye, who formerly went by the name Kanye West, and two other guests, white nationalist and Holocaust denier Nick Fuentes, and former Breitbart provocateur Milo Yiannopoulos. Yiannopoulos later told NBC News, quote, I wanted to show Trump the kind of talent that he's missing out on by allowing his terrible handlers to dictate who he can and cannot hang out with. I also wanted to send a message to Trump that he has systematically, repeatedly neglected, ignored, and abused the people who love him the most, the people who put him in office, and that kind of behavior comes back to bite you in the end, quote, end quote. And he said he arranged the dinner, quote, just to make Trump's life miserable, unquote, because news of the dinner would leak. That is, Yiannopoulos would leak it himself if need be. Nine days later, after more than a week of commentary, Ye compounded Trump's difficulties by going on Alex Jones's InfoWars show. Jones tried to help Ye out of his troubles with a softball opener, quote, you're not Hitler, you're not a Nazi, you don't deserve to be called that and demonized said Jones. Ye responded, quote, well, I see good things about Hitler. Also, I love everyone. Then he added, every human being has something of value that they brought to the table, especially Hitler. And as the show was going to a commercial break, the host told Ye he had a, quote, Hitler fetish, to which Ye replied, quote, I like Hitler. In unrelated news, also on Thursday, the Treasury Department's inspector general said in a report that Highly invasive audits of Trump foes, former FBI Director James Comey and in 2017 and former FBI Deputy Director Andrew McCabe in 2019 were not the result of any improper influence at the top of the IRS and, by implication, also not the result of any order from the president in place at the time, that is, President Donald Trump. In fact, despite the seemingly impossible odds of two former FBI opponents of Trump being targeted for these incredibly rare audits, so intrusive that tax professionals refer to them as autopsies without the benefit of death, they were nevertheless just coincidental. Now to 2024 news. 
On Thursday, President Biden released a letter to members of the Democratic National Committee urging them to change the party's presidential nominating process by rejiggering the calendar to remove Iowa from its first-in-the-nation status and replace it with South Carolina, and also to end the use of caucuses in the delegate selection process. On Friday, the DNC's Rules and Bylaws Subcommittee voted to do just that. Under the calendar proposed by Biden, South Carolina would hold its primary election on Saturday, February 3rd, 2024. New Hampshire and Nevada would hold their primary contest three days later on Tuesday, February 6th. Georgia would vote the following week on Tuesday, February 13th, and then Michigan would go two weeks later on Tuesday, February 27th. Democrats outside Iowa and New Hampshire have been complaining about the exalted status given these two states in the presidential nominating process for decades. Both states are overwhelmingly white, while the Democrat electorate is not. Both states are overwhelmingly rural, while the Democratic electorate is urban and suburban. Plus, both states are very, very cold in the middle of winter when the nominating process formally starts, which means activists and campaign volunteers have to door knock in freezing temperatures. And other than various forms of fried delicacies, there's no good local cuisine. So visiting reporters don't get much benefit from the obligatory reporting trip. Consequently, Iowa is done. New Hampshire is another story. Iowa is done because Iowa Democrats really screwed up in 2020 with a buggy software app that couldn't give them the results of their caucus in a timely fashion. It took them a week. Plus, as champions of the New Hampshire primary will tell you, Iowa picks corn. New Hampshire picks presidents. And that's true, since Jimmy Carter came in second place to uncommitted in the 1976 Iowa Democratic caucuses and then went on to win the nomination and the presidency. Only one Republican and one Democrat, George W. Bush in 2000 and Barack Obama in 2008, have won the Iowa caucuses and then gone on to win the presidency. But most importantly, Iowa is done because in 2020, Joe Biden finished in fourth place. New Hampshire, on the other hand, is not done because, well, because it's New Hampshire, and New Hampshire has been hosting the first in the nation primary since 1952. There's a state law in New Hampshire that requires state officials to move the primary election date to whatever date is necessary to ensure that New Hampshire's primary is held at least a week before any similar contest. State officials have made clear in previous cycles they'd be willing to hold their primary on the Tuesday before Thanksgiving, if that's what was necessary, to protect their first-in-the-nation status. Georgia may not be able to move up in the calendar because that would require action by the governor and the state legislature. And in Georgia, they're all Republicans. Nevada just elected a Republican governor, and he may not want to play ball either. Stay tuned. This one has a lot left to play out. That's our Washington report for this week.